what you will see um, as we continue through Romans, you've seen it already, that there will be some overlapping at times. Uh, we'll have to go back. We'll probably go back to Romans 3 all the time. <laughs> um, and, and so sometimes as I plan out the, the preaching schedule, I think I'll get to here, I'll get to here, I'll get to here. Um, but especially when we get to this section, um, just for kind of, kind of reference and context, the, the very first section of Romans, uh, the Apostle Paul removes any doubt that every human being would stand before God condemned. There's no escape all have sinned. He ends up in Romans 3 just saying, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then the apostle has taken everybody's excuse, everybody's claim that they're right, uh, and he has really just blown it out of the water so that when he comes to chapter 3 and he says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested uh, for a Christian it is just a reminder of the wonderful, fresh, life-giving breath of the gospel. Um, and as we work through our liturgy, as we work through our lives and our walk with God, to remember that, that, that we're going to have those moments where, um, and, and I say this sometimes to parents, if you have multiple kids, um, like we, we had one kid that needed to hear the law about five times more than he needed to hear the gospel because he just thought he was wonderful. We had another kid that needed to hear the law just once and the gospel five times because his personality was just, if, if, if he heard the law of God, if he heard what holiness was, uh, he would, he would just, just kind of fall into this, I'm a horrible person. I'm a and so he needed to hear the gospel five times. And so the apostle, in the writing of this letter, it's beautiful. He is laying out for us the walk of a Christian. We, we come face to face with our inability to keep the law of God, to keep our own laws, uh, and, 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 we're, and we're left in, a, in this bankrupt state, but now the righteousness of God is manifest. And, and for us, where we stand, how beautiful the righteousness of God was manifested when the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us, and we have seen the glory of the one and only. And so what we're drawn into in, in, as we get through four, and especially once we get to chapter five, what we're drawn into is this loving relationship. Uh, the fear of a holy God at the mountain where everything was shaking and the earth was trembling and people were like, don't let us talk to him. Please, Moses, go between us. We go from that to this beautiful manifestation of the glory, the holiness, and the absolute beauty of Jesus. Now, a lot of people are traveling this week. Some people are going to travel to see people that they do out of obligation. I, I hope that's never my kids, but if that's all we get, then we'll take that, right? <laughs> I mean, if it comes down to it, you owe us, right? You are eight pound of head, son, you owe us, right? We'll take it, but what we want is love to draw them, right? What we want, what we long for, is that time together to be life-giving. And I want you to know that as a Christian, when that gospel takes root, that's what you're drawn to. So in Psalm 105, where it says that we might keep his statutes. In Romans 5, as we talk about sanctification and living as these gospel-infused, righteous, declared people, it, 
it, it's to be like the one we love. To have our affections turn from the ugly things of the world to the glory of God. Um, so that first section could be marked in verse 18 of, of chapter 1. The wrath of God, it is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and the righteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And then we come to the glory of the gospel. But now, uh, just a beautiful pivotal part in Paul's argument and in the life of the believer and the church. Um, but again, before I read chapter 4, has anybody ever asked you, Hey, Mark, why should I be a Christian? Well, I guess not if your name's not Mark, but hey, put in your name. Why should I be a Christian? Have you ever shared the gospel with someone and they say, um, well, God loves everyone. Why, why should I be a Christian? Or why should I accept your form of God? Or, or why should I believe your Bible? Or uh, Anybody ever ask you that? I, I want you to consider if someone did ask you that. Um, what would you say? So in the first part of Romans, I think, uh, if, if the first part of Romans, you would say, to avoid the wrath of God, right? To, why would I become a Christian, right? My, my early stage of Christianity, little boy, not getting to do the things all the other bad kids got to do, right? Why, why would I become a Christian? To avoid the wrath of God, right? I, I, I just, if he exists, then, then, and his word is true, then... Um, but, but lately, in modern evangelicalism, that has been answered in a different way. Why become a Christian? Well, if I become a Christian, according to this person or that person, um, then I'm going to be healed. If I become a Christian, like you should see, today I got the mail out at the post office box, and there was a flyer, increase your church's attendance which would help a lot right here, right? Increase your church's attendance at Easter by sending out these flyers. And they had three samples, right? The first sample, of course, is a very attractive man and an attractive woman with happy children. And it's the picture, like, come to our church because this is what you'll become. Everyone's going to be happy, you know? You know, fortunately, if we ever update this building, we will get some more soundproofing between the nursery to hide what is really happening back there at times, right? But, but it's that picture. So every picture was just this beautiful picture of flourishing, right? So what is promised now, become a Christian, why? Because you'll get the good life. And I'm here to tell you that that's not entirely untrue. Life of faith is the good life. Now, how we describe good as a Christian is going to be different than whatever the culture says good looks like. But to follow Christ, to have a sure and steady anchor that we just sang about, to have an assurance that whatever befalls me, it's not some surprise to God Almighty. It's not because my sins aren't forgiven. It's because He's good and He loves me and He is doing work in me even now. But many Christians would say, come to Christ because it, you know, it healed our marriage. It may have. I've seen it happen so many times. In fact, I've told some of you that when I retire, I want to write a book. Actually, I just want to edit a book. I want someone else to write it. Um, but, but I want the stories 
of couples that I've known through 35 years of ministry that the Lord has healed. And I, and I want it because I just want to hand it. I, I, want to, I want a young pastor to be able to read it. And when someone walks in his door and says, we're throwing in the towel, this isn't working, I want him just to be able to hand it to him and say, chapter 7, that couple is just like you. Chapter 4, that couple is just like you. And then to do a companion piece, of course, with children and all of that. But, but um, to, to realize that, yes, the, uh, the picture of the good life sometimes on a flyer is different than the picture of the good life that we get with Abraham. But that's the beauty of Scripture. What Paul is going to do is he's, he's going to take out Abraham and say, uh, this is what a life of faithfulness looks like. Why should I become a Christian? Because God does exist. And it is foolish and it is dangerous to live as though he doesn't. Um, let's just say that you own $100,000 in federal student loans and then you hear about a forgiveness program. What would your first question be then? What does it require? Well, the ones I've heard about, um, you have to serve maybe in a dangerous school district. Or if you've got medical uh, debt, you've got to go serve in an in a inner city hospital. You've got to go maybe to the third world and battle malaria. Or you've got to promise to go to church four out of fun, five Sundays and tithe. We, we, we look at it. There's this blessing. This, this thing looks great. What does it require of me? Um, we got Justin here. I've always thought, Justin, when you started your job with Edward Jones, I thought that's probably the hardest job in the world to start. Um, because Justin, you know, he looks like he's 12 right now. <laughs> How old are you, Justin? You're like, 36. He's old, man. He's 36. But I, I, I just remember Justin getting all dressed up. Right? We prayed, and he's going to go do cold calls. Right? And I'm like, here's this guy that's going to go talk to someone who's 65 and say, hey, my name's Justin. I want you to trust your retirement to me. Really, son, how long have you been doing this? Seven hours. <laughs> right? I just thought about all of the objections that he would get. I'm supposed to trust you with our nest egg, with our retirement. We've got all these plans, right? And I'm supposed to trust you. What have you done? What have you studied? What have you learned? Right? The life of the Christian, it's the same way. And what's beautiful, again, as we read this text, I want you to think about it. We are talking about an actual person. Right? Genesis chapter 12 to maybe 25 or so is this detailed story of what he faces. And he gives it to us. Like Abraham believed God. It was credited to him as righteousness. And everything went swimmingly. No. It was difficult. There was ups and downs. It was him trying to take God's promises because he didn't know how it was going to work out and do it on his own. And yet, what a beautiful story of God's faithfulness. Um, I guess one last thing. Um, when we talk about what a life of faithfulness looks like, um, and, and I, I mentioned to you, we, 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 uh, maybe we come into the Christian faith afraid of judgment. We may come in thinking he's going to fix this and he's going to fix that. But ultimately, you stay because of love right you stay because of love um, and, and there comes a time in the life of a Christian um, where uh, 
by the power of the Spirit. You just, you, you've fallen so deep in love with your Savior that rather than thinking about what it costs me, what I've had to give up, what I've had to, what I've had to not do, you, 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 you tend to worry, what if he would leave me? And that's, again, the beauty of the gospel. Because our love, our love from him has been secured by what he gave up. Well, let's go to the text. Romans 4, 16 to 22. Um, the righteousness that we receive by faith, we pick up at verse 16. That is why it depends on faith, our salvation. It depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I've made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no unbelief, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God will stand forever. In your notes, that first tile in the intro says, you don't know what I believe. I was having a conversation uh, with somebody, and um, this person was talking about a person they confronted um, concerning their behavior. And... Um, that person responded like, you don't know what I believe. You have no idea what I believe. You have no idea what my faith is. And and person responded like, okay, you're right, I don't. And I stopped them right there and I said, yes, you do. I, what, what we believe, what we have faith and trust in, comes out in our life. Right? I mean, it, it's, it's not like this is the religious side of me. Here is what I believe concerning spiritual things, but it has no bearing on how I deal with my family, my children, my job, the government, taxes, traffic laws. It, it, it has nothing to do with how I coach these kids. Um, it, you, you have no idea what I believe. Yes, I do, because it all filters out. All right, we, we just started the season of uh, elder and deacon nominations. And part of that is you read Timothy, you read Titus, and you say, does this person exhibit this? We don't just give out a theological exam. Take this test and answer these questions right. We ask for the church as a whole. Observe the lives, the families, and the behaviors. Do they look like people of faith? Do they act like people of faith? It's pretty interesting in a small town, everybody knows everybody. Right? Everybody knows everybody. I went randomly to one of the soup and sermons, and I'm sitting there, and some lady's talking about my wife like she knows her. Finally, I'm like, ah, you know my wife. So 
like, well, at the middle school, this, this, this. I'm like, okay. Because, I mean, she was describing her accurately to me. She saw my name, Kuiper, and she's like, Tammy's doing this and this right now. I'm, not, I'm sure she's doing this. She's, you know, she just never stops working. She's like, I'm like, yeah, we have that song, He Never Stops Working. And, and sometimes in my mind, we think of Tammy, right? Uh, and uh, how do you know people, right? And this lady said to me, I think the world of your wife. I, 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 I've, I've loved working with your wife. Um, so when <laughs> you say you don't know what I believe, um, if you have a relationship with people, you know what they believe. Um, so I titled this sermon, uh, a, um, I don't know what I titled it. I wrote it down somewhere. It's not in my notes. <laughs> but Abraham's life as a prospectus on the Christian faith. Uh, the life of Abraham can stand as a prospectus on the Christian faith. And you know, I'm not talking about all the financial planners here, but this idea that a prospectus, uh, if, if said financial planner wanted to encourage someone to put their retirement egg in a certain fund, that person would ask for a prospectus. And it would say, here's what they've done, here's how it's gone in the past, here's what, here's what we plan to do with, with, with what you've entrusted to us. Uh, and I like this idea of thinking of Abraham's life that way. Right? That's what Paul does. He says, have you considered Abraham? Abraham believed God. Abraham was saved by faith. Have you considered it? So we think, let's look at that this morning in that way. Uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, uh, concerning this text. It's one of the greatest definitions of faith found anywhere in the whole of Scripture. Even bearing in mind Hebrews 11, all the great elements of faith are found here in short. What it does is it marries the foundational truths about the Christian faith to actual life. It's a constant thing for Christians, right? So James asked this question, can such a faith save this person? Right? James is saying, oh, we've got these easy believism. We've got the Sandominians. You've heard of them, of course, in the 1700s. All they required for someone to be a Christian was to repeat certain words. Right? All you had to say, in fact, to be saved was, I believe in Jesus. They didn't require any kind of repentance, any kind of confession, any kind of change in life. If you got someone to say those words, they were secure. We kind of have some of that stuff going on today, don't we? We get the whole situation going right. It's a, it's a moment at camp, right? And, and the kids are going to get free pizza if they become Christians. Every head is bowed. No one's going to know. It's going to be this little secret. Uh, say these words. Repeat this after me. And it's almost treated, right, like a magic spell. You've done it. You're good. Let me tell you, Abraham, it's the life of faith. This is what it looks like. It changed him. It changed his name, his vocation, his location, all of that. Um, and so uh, what we're going to look at this morning, and I'll, I'm going to run through it a lot quicker than my, uh, <laughs> my introduction, is these two principles of faith in this text, and then the five attributes or the marks. And I want to conclude with two main obstacles to the life of faith. Uh, two principles of Christian faith in verse 17 and 18. Saving faith is based on facts. Saving faith is based on facts. 
Um, we're asked to believe something about a person. For the Christian, uh, we are asked to believe about the person and the work of Jesus, the one we call the Christ, who is our Christ. Christian faith is based upon facts. So if we are to believe a person, uh, think about it this way. When we vote for a president, right? If you think about your vote, you're like, okay, what, what has this person done? What have they promised? Uh, what's happened in the, in the areas that they've already had small influence, where they've already ruled in some way? What's happened to those people? Can they be trusted? Do they keep their promises, right? All of those things, uh, we would just kind of uh, just, just ask that, look at that, right? What do they believe? Where are they going? Um, do they have the power to do what they've promised? Um, and, and is that person going to do what I need? The Christian faith is based upon facts. And in our text, uh, Abraham considered the facts about God. He didn't believe in God hoping that God would be the kind of God he wanted him to be. He believed, it said, he believed in God. He believed in him, his person, uh, his, his attributes, his power. Right? And it's not, and again, I run into this nowadays. I can't believe in a God who? You know, it's kind of like saying, I can't believe in a president who? Well, he's still the president, right? Whether you believe it or not, it's still the president. And, and so we've, we've gotten into this, it kind of feels okay that we have to orchestrate our presentation of God into something that is easy to believe when the truth about him is so wonderful. We don't have to change who he is. But, but uh, faith is believing in the facts about God. And so this is what Abraham said. He gives life to the dead. Abraham believed in the God who gives life to the dead. He had to believe that when he was called to sacrifice Isaac. He had to believe that when he was promised, through Sarah will your seed come and as our text said uh, he was a hundred and she was 90 he believed God he believed God is the one who calls things into existence he believed that when God said you will become the father of many nations in fact the way it reads I have made you the father of many nations I love the way God puts it he speaks of it in some in the past tense God standing out of time saying you have no idea how amazing it is going to be as I said this morning we're part of that fulfillment now you might believe all sorts of things about God but if it's only based on your feelings or some vague hopes or is it maybe just the carefully chosen promise verses then you're going to be disappointed. Then you've kind of put your faith in a God of your own making. And I run into people disappointed in God. He didn't act in the way that we think he should. I, I want to say to them, well, you don't know him. If, if, if you humbled yourself to know him, if you humble yourself to know him as he presents himself in his holy, inspired, infallible, and errant word, you'll never be disappointed in him. You might be confused. You might go and, and, and lament. You might, be, you might even be angry at times. You might want more information than he's willing to give. 
but he's never failed. Saving faith believes the facts about God. Secondly, uh, number two, saving faith is the instrument. It's the conduit through which God's promises were received. So in verse 13 of chapter 4, the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world, it didn't come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. That was last week's text. This week's text, that's why it depends on faith. In order that promise will rest on grace. Right? Saving faith locks itself into the grace of God. What is he saying here? If God's promises were fulfilled through our works, then it wouldn't be grace. It would be, I'm so proud of myself. I follow the Ten Commandments and look at me. Right? I'm so proud of myself. The reason I'm flourishing in life, the reason I've got wonderful kids, it's all because of my obedience. He's like, no, um, saving faith believes in the grace of God, and it is how we receive his promises. Um, he says, that otherwise, it's, it's got to be either all of works or all of grace. The promise rests on grace. Uh, all right, five attributes of Christian faith as seen in the life of Abraham. Uh, number one, uh, faith enabled him to believe God's promises. All right, we talked about that already, verse 18. I've made you the father of many nations. Faith enabled him to believe in God's promises. Uh, just a reminder, God's promises as they're in the scriptures. Okay, so again, where we live and how we live, people will often just come up and say, God promised me this. And, and you're like, when, how, are you sure it was him? Um, uh, it's, and we're not, it's not just our culture that does that. Okay, Abraham's culture did the exact same thing. This week, my Bible reading, just personal Bible reading is in Jeremiah. Jeremiah 28, we meet a false prophet. His name is Hananiah. Jeremiah 28, Hananiah, he's a false prophet. And you know what he tells Judah? You'll be spared. There's no need to repent. There's no need to change your ways. The prophecies of Jeremiah that were calling you to repentance, that were warning of the Babylonians coming in, those aren't going to happen. Right? And, and we find that kind of the common theme among false prophets. There's not a call to repentance there's not a picture of God's holiness. There's not a, a fear of God and His wrath. There's not a call uh, to changing behavior. No, it's everything's going to be great. He just loves you, period, and there's no need for you to do anything. And uh, God tells Jeremiah, the prophet Hananiah is speaking lies to my people, and I will demand his life this very year. Right? That's, uh, in prophecies, you have that short-term prophecy, and Jeremiah has those, and that's one of them. Hananiah, you're a false prophet. Please, people, don't believe him. God has said he will take his life. And in uh, verse 17, in that same year, in the seventh month, right? we're believing facts. Right? Why, why, why did he write that? In that same year, in the seventh month, Right? He, he's saying this is, this, these are factual accounts of God promising it and it happening. In that same year, in the seventh month, the prophet Hananiah died. Now you would think that that would be enough. Right? You would think that, okay, guys, Jeremiah said he's going to die. Uh, Jeremiah said this about God. Uh, Hananiah said this, this is about God. Um, Jeremiah said this isn't true. Um, and to prove it, God's going to take your life. Who should we believe now, people? 
Oh boy. Then there's another prophet that comes. Um, uh, another prophet, uh, Shem, Shemaiah, in chapter 29. Right now, the reason I want to tell you about this, and I, it seems I might be digressing, but we talk about believing in God's promises. Jeremiah 29:11. We see it plastered everywhere. Right. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Right? Recognize that verse? You know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Maybe the second most out-of-context verse used. You know what 29 is talking about? 70 years of exile. That's the context. You're going to be exiled for 70 years. Your, your entire generation is going to be exiled. But I'm still going to keep my promise to Abraham. That's what 29.11 is. Though you're being exiled, prepare for exile. Jeremiah says, prepare for exile. Surrender to the Babylonians. You're going to be taken. But it's not going to be the end of God's promise. Instead, we take that verse and we plaster it everywhere. Right? Just continue living a life of sin and rebellion against God, worshiping all other things, because guess what? His plans are to prosper you. Well, you know what happens in chapter 29? <clears throat> Shemaiah, another false prophet. And in 29, after 11, God says, Behold, I'll punish Shemaiah and his descendants. He shall not have anyone living among his people. He shall not see the good that I will do to my people, declares the Lord, for he has spoken rebellion against the Lord. So Shemaiah and his whole family perishes. Abraham's faith enabled him to believe God's promises. I believe God's promises given in the context of God's word. I believe in God's promises. What does God promise? Plan of salvation. What does he promise Abraham? Offspring. Through him, the seed would come. In Galatians 3, Paul picks up that same saying. It was the seed, the, the many, but it was also the Christ. So, brothers and sisters, faith in God's promises does not mean that we believe. Uh, when we believe God, it requires him to do what we want. It means really quite the opposite. It means God will do what he wants. And trusting in his goodness, his grace, and his mercy in his salvation. And it makes us a people of hope. The second thing, faith, uh, the second attribute of faith, it enables him to believe the bare word of God. God made a statement, Abraham believed it. Lloyd-Jones says there's always this naked element in faith. I believe. He doesn't ask for proofs or process or explanation. He believes that it's the word of God and therefore it is reliable God may give details occasion occasionally the Lord will say uh, and to Gideon I, I want the fleece here and and God will give that but he doesn't have to um, thirdly faith enabled him to believe the word of God in spite of the appearances to the contrary now, this is huge verses 19 to 20 he believed in hope he believed against hope kind of an idiomatic expression saying, beyond all possible hope. For when he considered these two things, 
He was 100. Sarah was 90. Literally, she had a dead womb, is what it says. He was as good as dead, it says. Faith is not a head buried in the sand. It is a head that says, I, I, I consider all of these other things, and this might cause me not to believe, this might cause me not to trust, but God's word stands above appearances to the contrary. Fourth, faith gave him assurance. It says he was fully convinced. He was fully convinced. Doesn't mean he didn't have doubts. If you have time to read Genesis 12 to 25, you'll find that Abraham had those bouts of doubt. How is this really going to happen? Right? He takes it in his own hands. Okay, it must be through my maidservant because I, I'm, I'm old. The way of women has left my wife. Um, of course he had doubts. Um, faith doesn't ignore the doubts. It considers the doubts. Faith looks at the path and says, here's what God promised and here's how I veered from his promise. And I'm so glad his promises are still fulfilled. That calls me back to a life of faith. But faith gave him assurance and lastly, faith enabled him to act. I love in Genesis 17, 5, Abraham takes the name that God gave him. Right, it's a beautiful sign of adoption. Right, when we come to Christ, when we are converted, when we are saved, uh, we, are, we are called his children. And maybe you know this already, but Abraham, Abram, his, his first name, meant high father. I like it. People often ask me as a pastor, what should they call me? I usually say, you know, my kids call me Holy Father, um, but you can call me Mark if you want. Uh, Hi, Father, right? Think how, how annoying that was to him every time he met people. Hi, my name is Hi, Father. Oh, really? Where are your kids? Uh, I'm going to have some. I'm going to have a bunch. I don't see too good, but you look like you're about 100. Yeah, yeah. Hi, Father. That's my name. Going to have a bunch of kids. What does Abraham mean? Father of many nations. In faith, he took the name. Because God told him, this is who you are to be. I want to conclude by just talking about these two main obstacles to our lives of faith. I would say the first for most of us, and maybe this is just me, um, his appearance. Um, we're encouraged that Abraham didn't go on appearances. Uh, he, he, although appearances seemed to, to be going to the contrary, he, he believed. But I think for us, uh, one of the great obstacles of our faith is appearance. What do we see when we look at the world? Um, and it, of course, it depends on our news feed, right? It depends on the algorithm that is feeding us the, the stories that it thinks we want to hear that will confirm what we believe or what we think is going on. Um, but it's an obstacle to our faith. We live by appearances. It appears this is happening. It appears the, the country is going this way. The church is going this way. Uh, appearances are often short-term. Um, man, lately, you know, God has acted this way. Uh, I encourage all believers, be students of the Word, read it on your own consistently, read large portions of the Word, and then journal your prayers. Talk about it. In my Bible, in, in, the, in the columns alongside, I'll jot dates 
and issues, dates and trials, dates and temptations, dates and deliverance. Surely our God's word can be trusted throughout my short life. But we, we're tempted to live by appearances. Uh, I think the second main obstacle is the promise. I would say the promise of God, sometimes it's just too amazing. It is too amazing to believe that I receive an inheritance because I believe. It just seems too amazing when we know ourselves. It just seems too amazing when we know our God. But Abraham stands not saved by his faithfulness. Right? It wasn't his faithfulness that saved him. It was God who saved him. And the promises for God were given to him through his faith, through believing. The promise that God gives us is amazing. Not just will your sins be washed and cleansed, but you will be, you will be in the beloved. Christ will wrap himself around you. When at the end of your life, it, it looks maybe a lot like Abraham's. Maybe worse than Abraham's. Maybe it looks like David's. Whatever it looks like to you in the world around you, those in Christ will be presented in Christ. That promise is just amazing, and I think it's why at times we think there must be something else I've got to do. But here's what happens when that promise is realized, when we've rested in what Christ has done, it changes who we are. It changes who we are. And so we don't necessarily point at our works and say, uh, keep doing better at this in order to be saved. We point at the gospel of Jesus Christ. We say, what part of it am I not believing today? What part of it am I not resting in? Is it, is it the part of the gospel that says I'm, I'm forgiven, am I washed? Or is it the part of the gospel that says I'm received because Christ has done what he has done? What, what, what is it? What is causing the anxiety? What is causing the fear? What is causing the doubt? I encourage you. Don't live by appearances. And yes, the promise is amazing. The promise is amazing. And our God is amazing. That beautiful verse from Jeremiah 29, 11, taken in context, is for us. In the midst of exile, right? we don't know what's going to happen to our nation. We don't know. It may be illegal for us to do what we're doing right now. It may be illegal 10 years, 50 years. And we may be tempted to think, it's over. I thought we were winning. And maybe then, Jeremiah 29, 11, will have great meaning. In the midst of exile, in the midst of a promised discipline for the people of God, our God says, I will still fulfill my promise. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the lives of the saints before us. You said elsewhere that, that they, they were given to us so that we might not grumble, complain as they did in the wilderness, but that we might trust in you 
The God who brings into existence the things that are not. The God who brings back from the dead our Lord and Savior. The God who sends His Son to not just appease His anger, but to fulfill all righteousness on our behalf. The God whose Son intercedes for us right now. Oh, Father, may we have lives of faith. May we be free in your gospel to openly embrace discipline, hardship. Tell our stories, not just the good stuff, not just the great pictures from spring break, but to tell our stories of your amazing rescue and love for our souls. And now, Father, we ask you to set these elements aside that as we eat the bread, as we drink the cup, that every believer would leave fully assured that Christ is an all-sufficient Savior for today and for eternity. And Father, we do ask that you would increase our faith. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.